Welcome to Fifth Wall's Fly on the Wall podcast, where we explore the shifts occurring in real estate, technology, and society that are driving our cities towards a more equitable, green, and tech-enabled future. I'm your host, Brendan Wallace. In today's episode, I catch up with Victor Coleman, the CEO and chairman of Hudson Pacific Properties, to hear more about how the demands of the company's tech-forward tenant base have changed both over the last five years and as a result of the pandemic. In addition, Victor reveals how HPP's strategy has evolved in terms of building safety, security, health, and sustainability, and shares his thoughts on the importance of brand building in the commercial real estate industry. Enjoy the conversation. So Victor, thanks so much for joining. It looks like you're joining from your office. Um, I am indeed. Nice. Um, well, Victor, obviously we've worked really closely together and we're you know, so thrilled to have Hudson Pacific as an investor in our fund, but can you just give people a bit of background just on Hudson Pacific that might not be familiar with your company? Um, you know, a lot of people know about our asset quality. Uh, we're up and down the West Coast. We're from Vancouver, Seattle, San Francisco, and Los Angeles. The majority of our portfolio sort of revolves around two types of tenant mixes, technology and sort of the media slash entertainment. Um, we've, we've really, um, cherished our relationships with the Netflixes and the Googles and the Amazons of the world. But, you know, in the markets we're in, we also have to cater to what would be the, the smaller size tenants, whether the VC capital firms that cater to those businesses or just the ancillary growth companies. You know, we had a tenant, great example is a tenant called Nutanix, who was a small tenant of ours, I think five, 6,000 feet many years ago. And then they went public two years ago and now they're a massive tenant. They grew with us. You know, I think. Um, the benchmark of sort of what, what, how people look at Hudson is, you know, we develop a little bit, we, um, we renovate a lot and we try to creatively buy in our markets and sort of maintain quality of real estate, quality of our portfolio. Um, and, and fortunately for us, we're West coast driven. And so either the best markets in the country, um, and even what we're going through right now, um, they're holding up better than anything else. And, and, and we feel that, um, our portfolio is going to withstand a lot of what we what we see going forward, and a lot of that's based on being, you know, very um, sort of force had a lot of foresight around where we thought our weaknesses could be as a company, and we've capitalized on that. And I and I'm hopeful that's going to take us through whatever happens. That sort of gives you sort of a sort of literally a thirty thousand foot snapshot. And and I'm curious, Victor, like you have such a technology forward tenant base, probably more so than than other commercial office landlords, and. I imagine being in that position gives you almost like a leading indicator on what tenants are demanding and how that's changing. And I'm curious, taking kind of this COVID crisis aside, how is that changing over the last five years, just in terms of what your predominantly tech tenants were asking of you as a landlord? You know, it's interesting. We've learned so much from our tenants' demands slash desires slash future vision. And then we've tried to incorporate that in our space. You know, the, the whole concept of having, you know, um, 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 uh, buildings that are technologically driven, it's so easy, Brendan, to take what they wanted and build it for them, but to adapt it was really challenging. So when you're talking about modifying existing buildings, um, that's, a, that's not a one-step process. That's a multi-step process, and we've learned that from our tenants along the, along the way 
um, and whether it's you know coming up with unique apps, technological advancements on security, coming up with um, appropriate HVAC systems, um, you know deal, dealing dealing with um, service calls um, and the likes of that, we've really grown with our tenants. Um, and it started with small stuff. You know, I, I remember when when our guys came to me and they said, "Hey, we're going to do license plate recognition, getting you in and out of buildings." And like I thought, I thought, "Oh, that's really cool. Let's do that." And now, you know, we've been running those in, throughout our whole portfolio um, for the buildings that have parking. And now nobody wants to touch car key paths, right? And so you get entrance that way. And so we're doing the same thing. We did the same thing with our um, with our phones. You know, our phones are our security entrances. We don't have cards. We swipe our phones, and you get into your floor. You get into your building. Um, all that's evolved from our tenants' demands and needs, and I just see it continually going forward. But clearly, post COVID, it's going to be you know that on steroids, basically. Yeah, and 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 part of it, it seems like a lot of the these kind of technological demands around how do you create a more a smarter building, right? That enables a tenant and an occupant to get into and out of that building, to park their car, to access their you know access the right elevators. All of that is um, now has a different context to it, which is this kind of public health context overlay to all of it. Ha- have you seen that shifting in the conversations with tenants that, you, that you've had? A hundred percent. Listen, I think, you know, the party line's always been, you know, safety and security, right? Even before COVID, but now it's safety, security, and health. But I tell you, you know, it's got to be based around, you know, one, one factor, which we all know has to be apparent, but nobody's really talking about it. It's patience. So how you deal with getting people where, you know, we, we were so used to running into our building five minutes before a conference call and jumping in the elevator and you're on the phone and boom, you, that may not happen right now. You right. may have to be safe getting people in and out. You still have to maintain protocol. You know, I'm hopeful that those conversations are going to lead to a, a whole new host of how people ingress and egress and how people respect people's space and maintain safety, as I said, and maintain health. And it doesn't fall by the wayside, but I can see how guards will drop. And us as a landlord, it's our responsibility to not only maintain the guards and maintain the, 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 the rails for people to sort of live within these new constraints, but be comfortable with it and be, you know, somewhat passionate or compassionate or accepting of whatever these new things are going to occur to get people more comfortable with the, the new world to come. And I don't think this is going to end anytime soon. I, I know most people agree with me on that, but what's going to happen is people's patience will obviously be pushed to a limit. And that's our job as landlords to sort of maintain form of activity, whether it's, I use the example on, uh, you know, conference calls. We, I think I had mentioned this to you before. We're putting repeaters in all of our parking structures. So if you actually have to be on a phone call versus leaving, you can stay in the structure, finish your call, knowing that you don't need to run upstairs and be on that call. Small things like that are really big things to tenants at the end of the day. Um, and we're going to learn and we're going to grow with it. And I'm curious, you, you've seen probably many real estate cycles. And obviously, whatever we're in right now, and it's still very early days, is probably a bit different. I'm curious, like on, on the other side of this, there's so much talk around what does the future of office look like, right? Like how do tenants think about their, their office footprint? And are they expanding that footprint? Are they decreasing that footprint is work from home uh, a secular trend that's going to massively change office. What are your views on that? If you contextualize it in what you've seen historically. 
So, yeah, I've seen a lot of cycles, but clearly nothing like this because, you know, the cycles have been more economic versus versus safety and security and health. Um, the cycles um, have, have been, you know, capital driven in the past or or cyclical in terms of what's happened um, in, in exterior motives and, mod and modifications of how businesses have shifted. This is clearly going to be a cycle that um, we're going to adapt. Uh, and I think going into this cycle, people forget to sort of figure out what was the process that nobody really gave a lot of merit into cost of real estate as a tenant because there was so much money put into infrastructure, employee uh, amenities, um, the co-working structure, putting more people in less space and, and having this cohesive work environment and maintaining a culture, which is why it's so shocking to me that you have so many of these tech companies who built their businesses on structure around their culture and now are saying, we can throw the culture out, you can work from home. I'm a huge believer, as you know, Brendan, that's not going to be the case. You know, I think it's only a matter of time before people realize that young people need to be cohabitating and working with other young people. Creativity uh, spawns creativity. Onboarding from training people, you cannot maintain that from Zoom calls and the likes of that. You need people to interact. And so I, I think what's going to be the main sort of positive from this side is when we get back to the new normal, you're going to see many companies who can't afford it are going to take more space for less people. It's the exact inversion of creative office. It's going to be creative office in some form and function where you're going to have more space, less people, possibly some work from home, but eventually the work from home is going to go away. Right now, we're forced to work from home because there's nowhere to go. As we're opening up cities, people are going to still get up in the morning and go have their coffee or go do their exercise and get out of their houses because they're not no longer required to stay in their homes or apartments or wherever they're living. So I think you're going to find that that's going to lead them to eventually this sort of padding, lily padding over to the first phase. The second phase is going to be getting back into the office. So it's a step-by-step -step process. Um, and I do think companies are going to be very patient. They're going to let people work from home for as long as they can until they're not patient, until productivity is proven to be not as productive. And we all know there are certain companies that don't have to interact with people. Productivity is going to be fine. But if you're creating something in the businesses that I deal with, media, tech, and entertainment, they're creating every single day and interacting every single day. They'll realize that that creativity is going to, is, is going to be diminished. And as a result, productivity is going to be impacted. Yeah, I think for us, that's, that's definitely been true. Um, and you and I talked about this. It, it felt like in the first month of, of, you know, COVID and working from home, I, I was shocked. I, I almost had this false positive of, wow, it, it seems like we're actually fairly resilient in a digital environment. Um, and I think what's happened is it has been a false positive because everyone was actually home, right? There, there was no, there were no distractions. Everyone was kind of available 24 seven. But now, I guess 90 days into it, we're starting to see the cracks of what it means to truly work remotely. And there is a lost creativity, exactly as you said. Part of what makes a culture vibrant is, is the new ideas. And those come from just random interactions that um, we're not having as a team. And for, I, I can say for us, how it almost feels is that we're thinking, I'm thinking about our office place planning much more deliberately which is I have that mindset. I have that higher level appreciation of now 
wow, how do we get back that creativity that we had in the office? There are some things we don't care about, like stacking people really closely together and, you know, ping pong tables and things that were, you know, kind of what you did as a company, but they weren't really deliberate or thoughtful. Now I'm trying to be much more thoughtful in planning that space. Well, I, no, listen, I think what COVID is going to prove out, one of the things is going to accelerate a number of trends that were either about to go in place and modify them or new trends. And those trends are all going to be technology-based, how you access your food, right, before you have your common kitchens. Well, today, all that kitchen space can be used for, for spreading people out because you're not going to have, you know, buffet kitchen style for a long time, right? So delivery in and out of buildings. People, you don't want people up to your space anymore because you're trying to maintain an environment. So technology is going to drive it. That makes companies like Fitzwall on the precipice of whatever the future of technology is. You know, we, we at, at Hudson, we had a tenant app. We were rolling out. It was going to take about a year to roll out. We started that last uh, summer. It was going to be for the whole portfolio. We beta tested up in San Jose. We ended up rolling this out in 30 days after COVID came out. And now the communication with not just, I'm not talking about the, the, the office manager, every single tenant employee has access to that app. So if let's say, God forbid, we have a COVID breakout uh, in one of our assets, they know not to go in the office. If, if we know that we're going to have some form of a service, they know that they can access that and take advantage of it. This is going to be streamlining communications, which then goes back to what you just said. In order to be a part of that, you got to be in the in, in the mix. You got to be either at work or coming into work and adding whatever levels of, of of additions you want to maintain your productivity. I think also to to sort of look, sort of tag on to what the um, technology has done with the tech tenants. Your office hours are going to change. So we we always sort of said they were changing, but they really weren't. If you were, you know, if you were in the finance business, you were in early, out early. If you were in the entertainment business, you were in later, out later. Now it's going to be a 24-hour work environment. Our buildings are going to be obviously running at much higher capacity, but you're going to have more people throughout the day, but different differentiating hours based on what the demands are. Departments are going to say, let's go to work at this time and work together and let other people come that time. So I think, you know, we're at the beginning of this. And, um, you know, as a company, it's something that I think we can capitalize on and with, with the benefits of relationships like uh, with Fifth Wall and, and, and other people who are gonna experience this. And we're gonna see, we're gonna have to live it. Um, but I do agree with you. People are gonna look at their space differently. Initially, it was a way to cut costs. Yeah. They started with the personnel and then they said, we can cut costs with space. They're gonna realize that their businesses are gonna only thrive based on the cultures they wanna create. And so that will all come back. And I'm curious to get your view on this. I had a conversation uh, about a month ago with uh, Chris Grigg, the CEO of British Land, and Mecca Brunel, the CEO of Ducina, who you know, uh, in France. Yep. And in some ways, they're you know, 30 to 60 days ahead of where we are, I think, both in the, the public health crisis itself, but also in what are the, the dawning realizations for the real estate industry uh, on the other side of it. And what they were both talking about was how the work week is going to change, right? Like you said it well, when say entertainment workers came late and left late, and when finance workers came early and left early, they were still doing it during the same five days of the week and roughly within the same hours. It was the same aperture of nine to nine, right? It was kind of the functional usage of an office building. 
do you think we shift towards a more 24 hour a day, seven days a week office building because workforces start to move in that direction? It's interesting. First of all, I think, you know, like your two examples of your, your two companies, they're European, you know, um, and I think they are much more akin to being more adaptable. You know, we're, we as, you know, a, a North American society are a lot lazier, right? And, and a lot a lot more sort of structured into what, what our businesses are or have been in the past and sort of lean with it. I think that's exactly what's going to take place. It's going to start, in my opinion, in any production level business. And what I mean is, like entertainment as an example, they're already talking about filming seven days a week to make up for the whole pipeline, which will then sort of say, okay, now you can work on Sunday, but you can take Monday and Tuesday off, right? Or whatever the case may be. It's, it's, or, it's in order to be more productive. You know, um, our team came to us at the end of the day uh, about three weeks ago. We used to go half-day Fridays all summer long. And they said, Victor, we should go half-day Fridays. I'm like, well, wait, nobody's in anyways. What does half-day Fridays mean? They're, they're not in Fridays. You know, right. We're running at 15 to 30% right now. But we announced half-day Fridays and casual attire. If you want to come in the office, people loved it. They, were, they embraced it. It was great. So I think you're going to find an entire um, sort of mindset that would change. But then again, I do believe people will revert back to the comfort, whatever that is. It's their comfort level. Um, remember, people have kids and they, they want to be home for after school specials. And they want to take their kids to schools in the morning and they want to go to the evening events and school plays and things like that, which is all going to or, or sporting events or whatever it is. It's all going to alter the process. So and one of the other things I wanted to ask you about when you, you were mentioning the, the, the app that the Hudson Pacific developed for communication with your tenants, one of the things that, that we've seen, which is a trend, is landlords really building brand and differentiated brand in their product offerings. And the product offering is obviously the space itself and the location, the price, and the duration of that space is constructed in a lease, um, but also just differentiating the amenities around a particular asset. Do you see the increased demands from tenants of, you know, we want this particular application, we want to know air quality control, whatever it is, and that communication channel between landlord and tenant. Do you see that as opening up an opportunity for commercial real estate landlords, particularly in office, to build brand in a way that they never had and, and differentiate their brand versus, I think, how real estate has often been conceived, which is undifferentiated, oftentimes commoditized product. Yeah, com commoditized at the end of the day. That, by the way, I, I hope so, because we're putting a lot of money and time and energy into it between what we have as our better blueprint, um, our sustainability aspect. You know, we are dealing with all of our buildings have new air filter systems that were put in way before COVID. And so when, when people come to us, we say we've already done that. Um, am amenities are going to be driven on, again, safety, security, people's comfort level. Um, and, and, and we're addressing that as we go. I definitely think that, you know, Brendan, it's, it's going to be a cost, you know, cost weighted analysis. And I'm prepared to spend the money to differentiate ourselves and be ahead of the curve. Because I think at the end of the day, you know, our relationships are key and we're going to be able to, you know, increase our footprint from, from a knowledge standpoint. The tenants are hopefully going to re revert back and say, how do I get into a Hudson building versus how do I get into this location? And I, I do think a lot of that's going to be based upon sustainability, you know, our carbon, you know, neutral policy here as a company, we were supposed to be carbon neutral by 2020, 2030. And we moved that up to 2025 because we know we could, and it's going to, it's going to attract, I think it's going to attract and differentiate us 
at the end of the day. We just signed a deal um, with a uh, with with a, with a company called uh, Crown Electrokinetics, which um, is going to be putting um, a tinting through all of our external window systems in the, in, in the in, in our portfolio. So it's going to maintain energy. It's going to automatically tint from light to dark. It's paying what it is. That's going to increase our energy efficiency. It's going to give people privacy if they need it. Um, and we're going to roll that out. And those are the kind of technological advancements that we're going to look at. And I think, yeah, differentiating is going to be the key um, to, to, to maintain relationships and grow relationships. The biggest variable is going to be retail, though. It's a small portion of office. But amenitized retail is always going to be there, uh, whether it's, you know, um, coffee shops or food outlets. But I, I think, you know, if you're a tenant and you want to control your own environment and being a landlord building that you like the landlord, ground floor retail could be, could be converted to office. And I think tenants would like that. I think they're going to want their own accessibility um, and controlled environments. Um, you know, we still haven't figured out how comfortable people are going to be in elevators with strangers. You know, albeit it's only four people per elevator, it's still an uncomfortable level. We still haven't figured out how comfortable people are going to be having a valet parker who's completely got a face mask and gloves and spraying down steering wheels. How comfortable are you going to be getting back into your car after somebody's touched that car, right? We, we need to work through that process. And um, all that's going to be delved upon and evaluated on a case-by-case -case scenario. And I'm curious, just, you know, you've obviously been an organization and you personally have been someone that has talked about sustainability and going carbon neutral as a company for a while. And how are, how are the conversations you think with tenants shifting um, as a result of COVID or is there any impact? And I know you and I had talked about how the demands of tenants or the requests of tenants to um, understand data about the sustainability aspects of a building, how those were on the rise. Um, do you think it accelerates in the aftermath of this crisis or is it kind of the same trend line? Oh, I think it definitely accelerates. Listen, climate crisis is a huge issue, right? And I think now this has sort of come to the forefront. There's been an ease in the earth and people, people realize that, that that in itself is a good thing. I don't think this goes away at all. Actually, I think it, you know, it motors to a pretty high speed. I think social responsibility around sustainability is, is no longer, you know, something you need to check a box. It's an action item that everybody has to has to and will maintain going forward. I believe wholeheartedly that, you know, companies that initially said, well, you know what, we, we're just going to work on that in due course are going to be pressed by clients, employees, um, uh, service providers to say, unless you are doing this to the fullest extent, we're going elsewhere. And I, I personally think that they should go elsewhere. Put the pressure on these companies um, that, ne that need to sort of align themselves with where sustainability is going, not where it is. Um, because this is, whatever, first, second inning, and we've got a long way to go to this game, getting to a point where actually it's actually an efficient game and people know that they have to be part of it to play it. And, and how do you think about just the, the other influencing factors? So, you know, we look at sustainability in the real estate industry, and it almost feels like there's these three separate vectors that are, that are influencing it and really driving change. Just one, the tenants, right? What tenants are actually asking of their landlords. Two is, is capital markets, right? And 
capital markets investors rewarding investors that are low or no carbon impact and providing real incentives to, to get there, both on the insurance, on the debt side, on the equity side. But then also more recently, regulators, right? So regulators have taken, in some cities like Los Angeles, a pretty bold stance on you know, how they envision a carbon neutral city. Um, what's your perspective, obviously having a lot of real estate in Los Angeles? Um, do you think this kind of almost puts more pressure on the less institutional owners that, that aren't in a good position to retrofit their buildings? Well, I listen, let, let me let me say it this way, um, because I think it's, it's, it's a challenging topic, um, which is not necessarily the, 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 the way I believe that we're going to do it, because I think we're going to go to the absolute limits. And you know that we've had that conversation as to as far as we can go, and then we're going to push it even further from a sustainability standpoint. Um, and cost is a factor, but cost is not the, the factor. It's it's really the relationship, um, the expectation. You mentioned your middle your middle attribute there, which is the investment community. You know, the investment community will only invest in Hudson if we do that anyways, and we knew that going forward. So it's it's aligned with what they want and what we want in that process. That being said, your latter point, which is the communities, the cities, and the likes of that, it's going to be hard, Brendan, for a city to say, you need to be carbon neutral when they know they need to be carbon neutral. So where's the money coming from for the public facilities to become carbon neutral? Where, who's going to support that for all the fire stations and hospitals and city buildings and you know all the likes of that? They can't say office landlord or retail landlord or hospitality landlord, you need to do it if they don't do it. And so I do think, unfortunately, given what we are going through now and going to come out of post-COVID with the lack of capital in virtually every major city and state is going to be bankrupt or in a deficit of some sort. Um, you're going to find that window is going to be elongated for them to, for them to actually push people to do it. So as a result, it goes back to what I said initially, some people are going to take advantage of this and just sort of say, check the box, we're working on this, and nobody's going to monitor what that means. Is that a 5, 10, 15-year plan? Nobody's going to monitor it until they, until they can. From our standpoint, we're going to be aggressive. I think, as you said earlier, I think this is a differentiator, not from an investment standpoint only, a tenant standpoint, an employee standpoint, a service provider standpoint, that we're going to be ahead of the curve. People are going to say, hey, these guys are doing what they said they were going to do, and we want to be part of them. Um, but I do think, um, and it's an advantage to us, but unfortunately it's not an overall advantage to the environment unless everybody's moving in the, in, at the same time and, and everybody's rowing the boat in the, in the same direction. We, we could be ahead of it and maybe there's some, some positives, but the true positive is to have everybody moving in that direction. And I think because of COVID, it's going to be delayed. And, and, you know, that's one of the things you and I have talked a lot about, which is this feels like a collective action problem, right? The, 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 the challenge with an issue like the climate crisis and sustainability in the real estate industry is that um, you need the whole industry to act together to adopt the same standards. And it's a really good point, I think you make that, you know, we're probably over-reliant on regulators and there's obviously administration change, there's political change that, that happens at the local level. How do you think we can achieve that, that kind of collective action um, in the real estate industry. If you were to just look at, say, North America in particular, there are some companies we know that are you know, very progressive and have a very forward posture on sustainability. And there are other owners that have no policy on it or it's just greenwashing. How do you yeah. think that the industry to act together? 
I think, listen, it's, it is, you're absolutely right. It has to be a collective movement. It has to be industry-wide sort of pact that, that we're moving together. And the only way you're going to do that is as opposed to sitting here and having in, you know, states like Washington and California, where we have the preponderance of our assets, where you have all these propositions and all these bills being passed for taxation, this is what you should really be thinking about. You should say, you know, we're going to tax you for not doing this. We're going to charge you for not doing this as a result. And that gets everybody on the same page. Right now, there is really no global mandate to say you need to be at these levels at these certain times. It will come. But as I said, that's where I believe that the real impactfulness is when you have all the leaders standing up and saying, I'm prepared to do this. You know, yeah. And, and I, I think it's going to happen. It's just now, unfortunately for some, the timeline's longer. Yeah. And that's unfortunate because I, I really believe if you and I were having this conversation, you know, six, eight months ago, the momentum and the wave was pretty strong. Yeah. And now it's it's there, but it's no longer the first and foremost aspect when you've got 30 million people unemployed and you've got, you know, an economy that, that doesn't see a true direction in terms of when this can turn around. You know, there, yeah. there are things that have been put in front of it, unfortunately. Yeah, I think that's totally true. And. I think it's one of like the big open challenges, which is without that regulatory pressure, there's only so much financial incentive. There has to be an element of altruism, right? And kind yep. of a, just a progressive mindset that real estate owners have to adopt. And that's going to be hard. I think it's going to be very hard one. Um, I think it's great that we're seeing it on the capital market side. Um, and I expect that we'll actually see more of that. Um, but I think that's probably not enough. You're probably going to need something done at the federal level. Um, to have the impact across, you know, the whole continent. Yep. Because remember, diversification of ownership um, is based on who the investors are. And yeah, from an investment, institutional investment standpoint, when you got companies like BlackRock and Blackstone forcing this and saying, we're not going to invest in you unless you have that, you know, or a guy like Jamie Dimon at J.P. Morgan saying the same thing, you know, they're not investing in everybody's real estate, right? So they, they only have a say for a small percentage of everybody who's involved. But yes, from a federal level, from a state level, they can mandate it and even give people the window, you know, and, 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 and provide that opportunity. And then you've got some time to get it done, but you've got to put it in place. And, and do you think, I'm just curious, the, the, the role and the responsibility you think tenants have in that? A lot of these tenants, especially for tech companies, have younger, uh, more millennial workforces for whom the, the climate crisis and sustainability is is table stakes, right? That, that is what they care about. What are the questions that the tenants should be asking of their landlords? Safety, you know, is, is this safe, right? Is my environment safe on a sustainable aspect, right? Do I have clean air? Do I have clean access? Do, do I have, you know, you know, tangible items that can prove around safety? Obviously, when your tenants are going to get their employees asked questions, about, you know, is, is this building carbon free? What are we doing to the environment? What are we doing to my kids' environment? Um, all that needs to be addressed and tenants are asking those questions. You know, is it socially responsible, you know, what, how we are ingressing and egressing, um, how we are delivering materials, and, and what is the carbon footprint around the deliverables? Um, you know, people, that's why people are talking about drone delivery versus just car delivery, emission controls versus, you know, diesel, all that kind of stuff. People are asking those questions. Um, you know, we're talking about pe people's quality of food, right? Where is it produced? How are we seeing it? The contents of construction, 
um, you know, what, where is, where is this um, lumber coming from? Where's the concrete manufactured? How is the, how is the piping coming through? Is it contaminated? Is it not contaminated? What, what are the levels by which, you know, the, the, the reform is being put in place to make people revolve around environment and safety? That's the key. And that's where the big companies are focused on. And clearly, um, they're going to lead the bandwagon. But you, you mentioned it. You know, I don't care if you're a Google or you're a mom and pop. The employees are going to dictate the welfare. Quality employees, at the end of the day, are going to eventually say, this environment I'm working at, at this company, does not satisfy my conditions. Right. And as a result, I'm moving to this company, which they'll hire me because I'm still high-level quality employee and in high demand, but I'm going to go there because they and I are aligned with what the future looks like. I totally agree. Um, well, Victor, this has been so interesting and I'd love to continue the dialogue as obviously we learn more and it's great that you're back in the office. I'm back in the office, excited to sort of lead the charge. So Brandon, when you get back to LA, you'll, you'll come visit me in my office and then we'll go to actually a thing called a restaurant and get served on actually silverware and a plate. <laughs> I'm looking forward to that. <laughs> all right, my friend. Hey, thanks for the partnership. And we love the relationship with Fifth Wall. So keep up all the great work. It's mutual. We love working with you too. So thanks, Victor. Take care. All right. Bye. Bye. Thanks for listening to this episode of Fly on the Wall. All of these episodes and more are available on our YouTube channel. To learn more about Fifth Wall, visit our website at www.fifthwall.com dot com.